Hi, this is Seth Green. I'm Matt Colin of RepGonX, the translator of on-chain, community-driven storytelling. And we are on Edge of NFT, the trend-setting podcast, bringing you the latest stories within the NFT ecosystem. Keep listening. Hi there, NFT curious listeners. Stay tuned for today's episode and learn all about the pros and cons of minting friendships on the blockchain. Plus, why we now live by the words, thou shall respect the bago and how the early 90s classic comic books still are guiding our present day Web3 livelihood. And don't forget, we put together a gathering called NFTLA just a few months back that brought out thousands of the world's most innovative doers in the NFT space. Head to nftla.live to get tickets to our bigger, bolder, better, but also just as intimate and impactful event happening in Los Angeles, March 20th to the 23rd, 2023. See you there. Welcome to The Edge of NFT with your hosts, Jeff Kelly, Ethan Janney, and Josh Krieger, the podcast that brings you the top 1% of NFTs today and what will stand the test of time. We explore the nuts and bolts and the business side, and also the human element of how NFTs are changing the way we interact with the things we love. This podcast is for the dreamers, disruptors, and doers who are pumped about this ecosystem and driving where it goes next. Today's episode features Seth Green and Matt Cologne of Replicant X, a new PFP collection from Steve Aoki, Seth Green, and the makers of Robot Chicken. An industry veteran, Seth Green is an actor, voice artist, comedian, producer, writer, and director who has entertained audiences for nearly four decades. Green has starred in countless films, including iconic roles in cult classics like the Austin Powers trilogy opposite Mike Myers. Can't Hardly Wait, alongside Jennifer Love Hewitt, Without a Paddle, opposite Dax Shepard, Rat Race, with Whoopi Goldberg, Old Dogs, opposite Robin Williams and John Travolta, Idle Hands, alongside Jessica Alba, and The Italian Job, opposite Mark Wahlberg and Charlize Theron. In 2008, he co-founded Stupid Buddy Studios with partners John Harvatine, Matt Senreich, and Eric Towner. Prolific Animation Studio has produced multiple critically acclaimed series, including its flagship show, Robot Chicken. Series now in its 11th season is not only Adult Swim's highest rated original program, but has won multiple awards, including three Emmys for Outstanding Short Format Animation Program and numerous Annies, including a Best Directing Win for Green. Other hits from the studio include Adult Swim's Titan Maximum and Hot Streets, Sony's Super Mansion, Hulu's Crossing Swords, Marvel's Modoc brand, Netflix Buddy Thunderstrucks. All right. Yeah. Seth is yawning at his own list of achievements. So when you get bored with your own, it's a slog. We get it. What's next? <laughs> Let's give Matt a chance. We like we scoured the internet for any information on Matt. He's we're doxing Matt today, actually, compared to Seth. We just had to do a quick IMDb scan for Seth, but we scour the internet for you. We had to scour the internet. Yeah, Matt hasn't really achieved much. No, he's just hiding it all. The dark web. Yeah, Diamond Mine, Matt Cologne, who is redefining talent management as YMU's global president of music, as well as managing superstar producers, DJ Steve Aoki, Colin directly oversees the US music division and leads global strategy and integration across the world, creating synergy between the UK and US music divisions. He also leads growth strategy for the organization with new manager acquisitions and key hires, leveraging an agency-built unconventional thinking, managing elite clients in sports, music, social, art, literature, and entertainment, 
YMU combines their rich understanding of diversity and culture to go beyond traditional management. There's a couple other chapters here, guys. That was chapter one. Let me get on to chapter two. <laughs> <laughs> you forgot that Matt's also been a resident advisor to NFTLA and really helped to make the first one that much more epic. So thanks, Matt, for all that. Totally. Seth, do you usually get without a paddle quoted in your recent credits? It kind of just depends. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know, man. People know me from, I, I, who knows at this point. With, I've been with people most of their lives. So my favorite bear attack joke of all time. And your cat has been there right along with you the whole time. 17 years, I got this ass in my face. <laughs> That's her favorite protocol. This is the POAP. <laughs> there you go. So subbing in for Jeff Kelly today is the one and only Zach Sekar, our head of NFTLA and resident Twitter spaces MC. Zach, good to have you on the show. Great to be here. This is going to be a fun one. Yeah. So look, Seth, I mean, like we talked about 40 year, like decades of incredible things that you've been doing to entertain the world. And a stupid buddy has also had a lot of milestones and success since its exception. And now Replicant X, how is all of this sort of good stuff that you've done in the past helped to create the mold for what you're doing with Replicant X? Great question. I've always been really interested in emerging technologies and how they relate to entertainment. Distribution is the main obstacle for most people trying to make a name for themselves or any brand trying to get any kind of publicity. So the fun thing about Web3 NFT, it's being able to take advantage of an immediate distribution. <laughs> That's what got me interested. So it started with Steve Aoki and Matt coming to us and saying that they wanted to create linear content in block on blockchain, which that just sounds cool. There's a immutable tree of data and information. And even if you're just identifying NFT or blockchain as a certificate of authenticity, the idea of being able to mint programming or even open the door to some kind of collective ownership over any large scale IP, that's all really interesting to me. So when they approached us saying they wanted to make something, we all said, that sounds like a great idea. Yeah, why not? Less a why not than a like the why. There's a lot of whys. The why not is because it can fail. It's too expensive. Nobody's going to like it. It'll destroy your careers and reputations. But the why is so much more compelling. It's the opportunity to be first in a space and to set a tone for how this kind of thing should unfold, which I always think is really important. Like the tone of it is critical. The introductions of any of these kinds of technologies that bring people together or potentially rip them apart. It's like the tone is the most important thing. It's probably my biggest grievance with anything that Elon Musk has done since he's taken over Twitter. He's invited and fostered a tone of communication, of interaction that is valueless, in my opinion. Yeah. So break it down for us a little bit, guys. It's the next chapter in the Caratex saga, right? So we got 4,000 NFTs. So the background of the character is Steve did his first NFT drop sort of a, that giant big wave with people and Blau in March of 2021. Right? Yeah, 2021. And in that first collection, there's lots of great art and 3D stuff. The one thing Steve wanted to do was take his signature. Like literally, the, when he writes Aoki, the O has a little extra eyes and a little mouth thing in it. Like, can we turn that into a character? And he just wanted to show up in a few of the NFTs. And for whatever reason, those NFTs sort of became the hallmark for that collection. And then we started speaking with Matt, who's Seth's partner, and the rest of that team about what this could be, they sort of came with the idea, like, let's take that character and like see what he would look like. like let's give him a world. 
let's see what he would look like as we sort of ideate out from that. And then they created some, I guess, rivals. We call them Chunk and Soul, these two little characters. And they took like what was essentially figment of C's imagination and gave it like a real life and world and a personality. And that was what we did was our first drop was with Stupid Buddy. It was called Dominion X. It was essentially like a sizzle reel, a little short animated film. We dropped it via Nifty Gateway, August of 21, sold out in a few minutes. And people got different scenes. And we just played with like the gamification of collecting. So people got different scenes. They tried to combine scenes and mint new scenes. And eventually at the end of like six months of like gamification, they were able to mint the full uh, hand, like four or five people got to mint the entire long form version of it. We also gave out the physical puppets that were used in the show. So you can see it was like a real actual physical production, not just a song sitting on a computer. Not that that's a bad thing, but it's a different style of animation. And then we talked about what we would do next. And Seth's partners were kind of of the mind. That was a lot of fun. There might be something real here. What if we tried to make a real show out of this? People seem to like the short. And we spent the next, I think, season 11 of Robot Chicken came into play. So we had to take a slight pause on sort of the dev for a few months while we did the gamification part. And then picked up the conversation, I think, at the beginning of this year and started ideating out, like, what would be a way to finance it, to grow the community? Because right now we have 400 NFTs, which is a relatively small community. Uh, So how do we grow it? What's popular? PFPs. What can we do with it? So long story short, it all came to something called ReplicaNX, which is we replicated Character X, the character, in different iterations of it. The money from the sale went to then finance the first episode of this short animated series. And then we now have thought about what does it mean now to be a holder more than just, hey, it's my PFP, but like, what if you actually could participate in the, in the writing of the show? What if you could see it as it's being done? And again, because it's physical production, you're not watching someone behind a computer screen. You can watch someone physically making these puppets actually set. And Seth can talk about this way better than I can, but like, they actually set up real sets, real stages, real cameras. It's all, it's real live production just on a one sixth scale or something. Seth, how does it feel to have like thousands of additional writers in the writer's room with you? Wow. It's a new concept, especially for, but what we're talking about is a new concept. So you, it's like, you wouldn't apply that kind of philosophy to a standard pilot for television, or you're not going to get 10,000 people to gang write a feature. It's just untenable. Yeah. I think that's actually why all of the like choose your own adventure interactive stuff that people have tried to pitch for a theater experience doesn't work because you only get the majority of the collective. So unless you're doing something like a bandersnatch, which is a personalized interaction, you get this, it just won't work. But this is fun because it's designed specifically for this purpose, right? You're creating a scenario by which this whole audience of passionate enthusiasts are collectively writing the intellectual property that they all own. That's a, a completely different idea. So it's not like we're saying, hey, let's get 10,000 people to write a Batman movie or a Spider-Man movie or even a compelling story about a guy and a girl breaking up over the summer. You're specifically saying, hey, all of these people are already invested in this idea. They like these characters. They want to be a part of telling the story. And then we just have to shape the experience in a way that allows for that. So some of it is making it as simple as an A, B, or C, right? We're asking people to come up with prompts or we'll say, hey, what's Chunk's favorite food? And they'll give us all of these kinds of suggestions. And as a result, we know things that will fit in the narrative of the storytelling. So it's less like what happens in this episode than Chunk opens the refrigerator. What does he find? Do you know? So we focus the points of ideation so that everybody can collectively be involved, but we actually tell a story along the way. In the longer view, do you think that like in this kind of pretty new version of community 
based writing. How much do you expect the community to really evolve the characters themselves? I think there's a real opportunity for it because all of this stuff we've started with is with almost nothing. And then through each of these points of persona that the holders help us to define, we determine what the personality of this character actually is. So the audience, the holders are collectively really incredibly involved in the growth and evolution of the characters. Yeah, I'm looking at it now. I'm in our I'm in our Discord on Friday. Oh yeah, what are they at? What poster? Some of them are just completely aesthetic, right? What poster hangs over Swole's bed? That's just like, hey, you're gonna see the poster. Like, I chose that or I voted on that, right? How does Chonk soothe a baby, a crying baby? That so whoever they choose is actually gonna be what happens on screen. What does character X dream about? That's really kind of a blank palette. You can come up with whatever you want. And the way we sort of structured it was so we partnered the, the artist named People Pleaser and another one named Mache Mache who actually Steve has done collaborations with both of them. They have a platform called Shibuya, which is more of a choose-your-own-adventure narrative storytelling. Yeah, platform. sure. So we partnered with them. There is going to be a version of this where you get to watch an animation and choose what happens next. But we want to get people involved a little earlier than that. So rather than sort of us spending the next three or four months animating all these scenes and these end results, let's have people involved in what the, what that's going to be. So what they're voting on now in, in our token gated Discord or what they're kind of improv... Oh, like whose line is it? Whose line is it anyway? It's basically an improv show happening in our Discord. Like, just give me prompts. People are chatting stuff out. 20, 30 suggestions. They'll narrow those down to the ones they like, and those will become choices in the Shibuya experience. But this way, people are involved from day one, from the writing of the episode. Later on, they'll be, we'll start designing things. They might be able to, like, what color do you want this chair to be? And they can really kind of take some ownership over, like, what they end up seeing on screen. And we've even gone so far as to, like, when we do the Shibuya thing, it's not going to be a completely polished animation. They're going to see, like, little armatures. They're going to see, little, it won't be a fully finished thing because you're, you are part of the production experience. You're going to see a 80% done thing. You're going to pick the ending. Then we're going to go real animate that ending in real time and then go back and color correct and animate and do the SFX and all that stuff. But they're also doing it. And we kind of joke, it's the South Park version. Can you animate? I don't know if you're doing Can you animate in real time? So they're going to animate for four days, the setup. People will have a day to vote. And then they're going to animate for another two days, the end result. And then on day seven or day eight, you're going to get to see the fully produced 15 second short and then we're going to put all these 15 second shorts together to make like a two, two minute episode. We're also dangerously bending the audience's expectations with respect to speed of a capable accomplishment. Like some of the stuff when you're talking about stop motion, it just takes time because it's time intensive. So when you make stop motion, you literally have to build everything. There's a lot of hacks with respect to just a photographic background or like we learned from the Mandalorian that you can shoot a giant LED screen behind a stop motion setup. And depending on the scale, it looks like a flawless fall off background. But it is essentially one person or maybe a team of people at best moving something incrementally and then taking a picture of it frame by frame. So it's just like cinema in that you build the sets, you light it with proper shadows and actual beautiful lenses and all this great technology, but at the end of the day, it's like a single person has to like move the thing and click, move the thing and click. And then over hours, it looks like a sequence. So two days. When you said it's just like cinema, I, I want to see somebody do like a movie where with real actors, but they have to go stop motion position the actors. <laughs> like, did somebody do that? <laughs> yeah. Peter Gabriel's sledgehammer video is that there's been a lot of versions of that where people have used human beings as stop motion props. I think, okay, Go did one, but it's also, it's just the effect that it achieves is not worth it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, totally. 
like for an entire film. It's a really expensive massage bill for those actors. Yeah, you should watch Waking Life. It's kind of Richard Linklater's movies. Kind of a cool example of that. That's one of my favorite movies. Yeah. Oh, right on. I watched it in so many various stages of like inebriation. <laughs> <laughs> That's what it's there for you. Yeah. You said inebriation? Yeah. Yeah. Drunk history. That's a key one. All right. So, I'm so sad they canceled that show. Did they? Oh, I just, there's, I'm, yeah. glad there, I'm just glad there's so many episodes because like there was a library, but there's a lot. There's a lot there. They had so much more to make. I'm, just, I'm really upset about it. It's genius. It's a genius show. Well, so we just, you mentioned the Discord that's open for the holders of the Replicant X. Just tell us, can you tell us a little bit more about the development process for the collection in and of itself? How's that been rolling along? Yes. So it was interesting because at one point we talked about doing, we got claymation, like we talked about physically doing it. And then we realized just how, I mean, to set up what's the right word, like the, trying to make 500 traits physically and, like, and taking photos of them was just not a. Yeah. Not- I saw somebody do that really early on in NFT. Somebody made like a stop motion or rather just an asset trait spectrum that everything was handmade. And it's, I think they only did like 2,000 of them. And it was, it's insane. It's an insane thing to do. It's also not necessary. I don't know that you really get an extra benefit from having photographed it, right? Right. Yeah. So, so I think that was the, the takeaway. It's like, at the end of the day, what are we actually trying to accomplish? Number one, we're trying to grow the community. Number two, we're trying to finance the first episode. And number three, like, you want something that people can flex and floss and use for some sense of identity. And all that didn't predicate it being physically manufactured. Well, it also just our costs up front would have been if we never would have been able to like get it get back in black. Like we'd had to upfront spend more than we could make to produce it that way. So then we went through, I think the Super Bowl team brought in a handful of like illustrators, came up with a bunch of drawings, character acts that Steve just kept going like yes, no, yes, no. And we kind of narrowed it down to the current illustrator who did the entire collection. And then it was a matter of like coming up with traits. And again, that was a part of that was Steve and the Super Bowl team kind of going back and forth on like what are the traits that suit the collection because of what it is and so, some of the storytelling that we've done. And then some of it is like taking cues from culture, whether it's like diamond hands or gold grill. And then a few of them were like taking, uh, there's a Pixelmon Kevin in the collection. There's a couple of Goblin Town NFTs hidden in there. You know what? It was a lot more work than you think to actually do a good collection and have the traits kind of well distributed and the rarity. And we're still working on the rarity as we speak. And then going through... And I said to you, God bless you, you didn't have to do any of this part. Like going through and looking at them all and just seeing that like there's a tool you use to like put it all together and you make a bunch of rules like the glasses go on top of the head, not behind the head. The hair goes on top. But then you realize, well, the hair goes on top, but it went over the glasses. All right, we've got to go back and change that rule. We're in the whole damn collection out again. And you do it like 500 times. You go through them all like, oh, look, the belt buckle felt is on top of the jacket instead of under the jacket. Oh, we forgot that one. So go back, change that rule. We're into the whole thing again. And just keep going through this process. And then even when you're done, you have to render more than you think. Because even if the rules are all right, some of them just like aesthetically look like shit. And like, okay, that's just a, a bad trade. I don't know what we were thinking. We can have this that many clowns in the collection. It was a little bit time to, it's just, it just way more. You just see these things pump out and you're like, how hard could it be? We had a similar experience with the Pizza Bot where we had intended a much larger collection than we were able to mint. And it's that same process of separating them and I had to go through all of those. That was an insane review process. We had a collection of what, 4,000? We had like 10 people taking on like 400 each, but everyone, you wanted every, everyone to look at, look at twice. So basically everyone had to do 800 of them, just in a one 
by one taking like, oh, the hair is not quite right, or this it was. I'm just I think what you're not saying is the overwhelming part for me, which is in the midst of that, you've got Steve touring, performing all over the world. You've got Aoki verse launching and crushing it. It's and you're just like you're just the guy that's like calm, cool, collected, sort of. It seemed like you're having a blast, man. Matt, you always seem to keep your cool. How do you do that? Yeah, I mean, so, you know, you, enough. You put out enough fires that there's just it's just another fire. Well, in this next segment, we're gonna try to throw Matt off. <laughs> <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> no, I mean, I guess like Matt, it's you've done a lot in this space, and Ethan was joking, but not everyone appreciates sort of how long you've worked with Steve. And, and how much of a glue in the Web3 movement that you've played, like, what's it like for you sort of in this space, working with visionaries like Seth and Steve, and what inspires you? So I've been with Steve for 20 years, going on maybe 18 or 19. The the fun thing about working with Steve is, like, if it was just the music, I probably would get bored. Don't get me wrong, the the money's great. But like, like anything, like it gets becomes routine, you kind of figure it out. The great thing about Steve, and the part I love and part I hate, is that he always wants to do something new. So every year or so, I had to figure something out. So in the beginning, it was just learning how to be a music manager, like learning how to do music production and publishing deals and record deals and how to market a record. But like five or six years, you can't figure that out. So then he wants to do a movie. So we do we did the Netflix documentary. He wanted to do a book. He wanted to, we owned an esports team. Like every year he gets some new hair up his ass that we're going to, like right now it's trading cards. He owns Medizu, one of the hottest like trading card companies in the world. So I'm learning what a booster pack is. And just like, the minutia of some of this stuff. But while part of me is like, oh God, another one. But it's what keeps interesting. And the Web3 one, I will say Web3 was a different experience than everything else because everything else was sort of pre-existing industry, right? So we're going to do, we're going to make a documentary. So I've learned, met a bunch of documentary makers and reps and kind of figured out how the industry works. And now we've done a few of them together and we're doing a movie and a TV show about his dad. But that's a pre-existing world. You just kind of learn it and try to insert your foot in the door. With Web3, we got to get in something at the very beginning. And we had the lucky blessing. We have another artist I represent named RAC, and one of my partners represents named Blau, who had been in Web3 and NFTs for NFTs like six, seven years prior, and Web3 since the very kind of beginning of it in early 2020, late 2019. So we got to get our foot in the door at the very beginning. So, like when that, I was telling somebody else the other day, when that first wave hit in March, we had like six drops already lined up. So we just like made a killing in March and April because we had been working on this from the prior summer. In fall, when everyone else is like scrambling, like how do I get, how do I make an NFT and, and get something up by the end of the month? We had a Steve made the money he made first week of March. Blau had made 11.8 million, whatever it is, a week before. He had another drop two weeks before. We had RSC drop the week after. We had like eight drops, six drops all of March and April because we had been building towards the moment, not realizing it was going to be what it was. All that said, we got to know more people. And I think because it was a brand new industry, these things like WhatsApp groups and Telegram, they popped up. And this is also the middle of COVID. So I ended up becoming, I said really often, I've made more friends in Web3 in the last, say, two years than in the prior 20 combined, easily tenfold. Like, you're all, all adult men. You make a new friend every year or two, and they kind of come and go, if you're late, exactly. It's very challenging to make new friends, Matt, especially if you have a pre-existing persona that strangers are aware of. Like, you have, I get all comers, and I'm not, I'm typically... People say, I feel like I'm aloof because I spend my entire day surrounded by people. And so I make a bit of an effort to take any time to myself. And as a result, I don't make any new friends, but it's that same shit. Like Steve told me, we were working together and I was like, well, what's up with this NFT? I just saw that they're being recognized by Sotheby's. It's becoming 
art and collectibles. And he was like, buy one of these apes and hang out with these people, meet all these new artists. And next thing you fucking know, I'm this deep. <laughs> I'm this deep. But it is. It's because guys like you, Matt, are such good ambassadors for the space. And also emphasizing a tone, insisting a behavioral model, like a civility, an encouragement, like an access. It's good. It's why so many people have followed you. I have a lot more friends now because of Web3 doing this podcast. It actually, I mean, Web3 is what brought Ethan, Jeff, and I together to do the show. And we saw so many friendships minted at NFTLA and business deals done, partnerships and collaborations. And it's something about the space that's really special that you can't really define, but it's there. Should we actually have a functionality at NFTLA where you can mint your friendship on the blockchain? Is that what's happening now? <laughs> There's something like that. I think Brock has like There's some sort of facial mesh of the two people or something. It's... <laughs> I don't know. That feels like just a replacement of Twitter circles or <laughs> Facebook friends. The friendship's in your heart, man. You don't need an NFT to prove it. <laughs> for the real game to make, right? <laughs> it's easy to want to help people out in this space to be successful together. Well, because that's I, been I, that's where really stage like onboarding is everything, right? Like it, we only we all win if the community grows. So like you want other people to have success because they're bringing more people into the community and you want, you're genuinely happy when people make a lot of money. Like, whereas like in other industries, it's kind of like, there's a finite amount of people out there to consume, right? Mm -hmm. So like someone else's win might be your loss. But in this world, like we're so, I say we're so early, but like it's such a small community. Every time someone new makes an NFT, like except how, how late, how many hours I spend with you like learning to like mint, teach you how to mint your NFT and use your wallet. And like, just knowing like if that gets- It was a while. It took yeah. me a while. <laughs> but it's worth it because like if Seth gets into it, he likes it, he's going to talk about it. That's going to add more people. Like it's a little bit of like an Amway mentality. Like you're just trying to like onboard people. Like we're vegans or born again Christians just trying to like. Yeah. You said it was Steve who onboarded you to the Board Apes, which has certainly become part of That's your true. Web3 story that, that some people know. I had the pleasure of seeing you at VCon and you showed your White Horse Tavern trailer, which was fun. Yeah. Actually, fun fact, I used to live two blocks away from that bar in the village. Oh, yeah. Hudson. But so like since then, I've kind of had a question that I'd love your perspective on. And so it's around this really interesting topic of digital property rights. So like you've made this show, obviously, and then famously that that board Ape token was stolen and you no longer had access to the wallet controlling it. And you've seen, since recovered it. But at that time, you were talking on stage that hadn't happened. So I actually thought that moment was super interesting because let's say Whitehorse Tavern goes and is a huge commercial success and someone else has control of that token. Do you have any idea what would happen? Like if we, there was an IP lawsuit to come about, <laughs> yeah, especially of in like I, an anonymous situation? Yeah, of course. I'm, before I went public with the fact that it was stolen, I consulted multiple intellectual property lawyers. And having spent the last almost 18 years of my life making robot chicken and being front and center to all the precedent setting intellectual property, copyright, legal debates, like as high as the Supreme Court over the last 80 years. Anytime these kinds of things get debated, I've paid attention to it because it becomes your armor doing a show like Robot Chicken, where we don't ask for permission because all of the comments and jokes that we make are well protected under what's considered fair use parity. So with something like the NFT, there's a lot of things. Number one is that the Yuga contract doesn't stipulate any kind of term wherein you create a derivative license from your ownership of the token. 
So it isn't really determined. It could just be presumed that once the token trades hands, that token no longer covers the intellectual property that was lawfully created by the person who held the token as the ability to create derivatives from it. That's one. Because you would say that if you sold a property, you would no longer be entitled to future residuals from that property once you'd sold it. Same as when you bought it, you would assume all new, like let's say you bought the rights to a song, okay? You wouldn't automatically get all of the residuals that were ever made from the royalties that were made from that song in its history. You would only get new royalties from the time wherein you owned it, right? That's all law. The thing about this was because I'd created a derivative from the cameo and because the Yuga contract only covers what's actually referenceable in that cameo, the single front-facing quarter portrait of this character that only goes as low as arguably his nipples, doesn't even cover his elbows, anything that I innovate on top of that character becomes my property and is a derivative from the original thing and not referential to the original thing. So much so that it would have taken the guy suing me. It would have taken them making a claim against my current thing and saying that they were the legal owner of it for anything to happen. But as soon as they sued me, I'd have to demonstrate and countersuit that I had so become inexorably intertwined to Board Ape 8398 that the hundreds of articles that were written all calling me an idiot or like a rich dummy or whatever they said, they all mentioned the name of the show White Horse Tavern and called Board Ape 8398 Fred Simeon. So just by that, I had hundreds of data points of clear example of the public knowledge of both my connection to that character and that character being called Fred Simeon. So much so that I could get an injunction against this guy ever being able to exploit it past that because of the potential of marketplace confusion. That was why when I tweeted, yeah, this could get us into precedent setting intellectual property debates, but I'd rather avoid all that and like, give me a call, which is what happened. The guy reached out to me. I tracked down his wallet. We had the same crypto punk. I was like, I'll bet this guy and I would be buddies. He was into apes early. He was just like a successful guy who was into NFTs as escapism. And so we bonded over that. I offered to give him what he had paid for it because he wasn't the thief. I had four assets stolen and then sold on four different platforms. And I only chased down the ape. But like I said, that was the legality of it. We wouldn't have gotten into any kind of Dutch unless they came after us. And it is a stuff that's still going to get determined at some point. Somebody's going to take some of this to court. The main flaw in the Yuga contract is it doesn't stipulate the term wherein you can license whatever the thing is and what happens on either side of the ownership of it. It's not a big flaw, but it's a flaw that somebody could have exploited. I have kind of a related question that I think is to me even more fundamental than the, the necessarily settled law. And that's almost like the nature of ownership itself. It does being able to say that I'm the only one that knows the private key to get into the wallet that currently has this token, is that the same thing as ownership? Have we like decided that? I don't know. Because well, the ownership is defined by the term of the individual contract. And then it's going to get tested across all these other points that any given owner attempts to create a greater derivative. So uh, some of it's still unknown. But right now, the deal, as everyone understand it, understands it, is you're able to get the benefit of some artist's creation and the validity feedback from all of the other holders of this project. 
to try and send your character up on stage. And you can say anything you want about it. You still get to fall back on this existing collective. Like, look how supportive every ape holder is of any ape holder that's trying to do something, whether it's the restaurant or the comics or the Jenkins, like whatever version of it is, anybody that holds is trying to prove the value of these icons in pop, in mass pop. And I think that's what it's going to take. You guys have anything that you're building that'll have a similar like community IP ownership? I've got a lot of hopes that Whitehorse could turn into something that has other NFT connected to it, whether it's like a membership thing or like a free drink at the bar thing, or whether that ever gets into any kind of storytelling. Something there, whether it's an AR experience, I'm not sure yet, but that's definitely a place where we're trying to ideate. But both the PizzaBot and the Globetron project, the BeeBots, that I put out, they are both the same kind of thing where we as the founders are building out the available public intellectual property and any of the holders can build on top of it using the assets that we give them or the NFT that they buy. Yeah, I think I feel like there's a little bit of a reckoning coming on all this IP. Like my friends that are IP attorneys or like like just create IP, there's an internal debate over what happens when two board ape restaurants open next door to each other, right? From the average person, like it's Mickey Mouse, right? All the apes are the same. They just dress differently, right? So yeah, the differentiation for a lot of the stuff and to your point, like the whole issue that got brought up, Seth got his ape stolen and people just assume that like, well, then you lose the, you lose the IP, right? It's like IP law doesn't exactly work the way Web3 wants it to work. And I think there's going to be a lot of, well, sooner or later, someone is going to challenge what we base all of our assumptions on, right? And, and I think we're all sort of assuming like, oh, IP just freely changes hands when you buy and sell a thing and I own it now. Well, there is a little, I mean, there is a little bit of that. If you look at the way a studio like Warner Brothers owns derivative rights to Batman into perpetuity, they continue to give another person a drive, a shot at the keys. Like each time, whether it's Chris Nolan or Matt Reeves, like another director, Tim Burton, they're like, all right, this is Batman. You could say for that moment, they get to activate that token, right? So there is a version of this that goes into the future where the icon, the board apes, is itself the thing that's well known. And any one of these characters, I think each one of these projects is different. That's the hard part. Like every one of these things is just going to hit a little bit differently. I don't think there's ever going to be an apes movie the way there could be a Dead Fellas animated series, right? Like a Dead Fellas animated series could work the way the Smurfs work. Whereas the apes, just because of the icon that they've become, the way they all kind of roll out into mass pop is more exciting than ever seeing like a movie of all the apes at the club. Yeah. And all all these projects are different. They've all sort of given away their rights slightly differently. And I think also people like the doodles have a specific vision for how their piece is going to roll out. So I want to believe that. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I'm still holding with the belief that it's coming. <laughs> so yeah, this, this is an awesome conversation. And uh, you guys have some deep thoughts on it. And I think uh, it's also just up to the communities. And like you said, setting the tone, Seth, is part of all this. Like, what we, It's what we want to make of it. And I think that's what's exciting about all this too. It's like folks like us like these domains because the rules aren't set yet. We get to help create them. We get to help break them. We get to help bend them and figure out what it's going to be. And that's a good segue to your... Uh, kind of your buddy code from the stupid buddy studios. 
outlining these redeemable qualities you value working with teams, different ranges of projects and stuff. How do you see those core values showing up day to day? And by the way, like we got to give people a couple of these. That my favorite is thou shalt respect the bago. Oh, wait, I should explain this. So when we started the studio, we teamed up with Harvin Towner. Matt and I teamed up with Harvin Towner, who were animators on the second season of Robot. They, like Towner won an award for his animation on the first Star Wars special. These guys broke off from the production company we had been working with and set up their own little boutique animation facility where they were just trying all kinds of crazy stuff, innovating technologies like reverse engineering the camera on the iPhone to try and get like micro lenses to hyper-focus, just all this really cool stuff. So they produced, as part of a proof of technology, they produced a short called Super Bago. And it was two animated characters driving the country in a Winnebago trying to stop crime. And it's a great thing. It proved a lot of technology. In fact, the same kind of stuff we used to make White Horse. All of that compositing, that like actual live action photography composited with animated characters in the same way they did Roger Rabbit, but with like none of that stuff. The thing Super Bago, they produced this short. I'm telling this so poorly. The whole point of this is they had to buy a Winnebago to shoot this thing. And when they finished shooting it, they were like, I guess we own this Winnebago now. (laughs) And so they couldn't bring themselves to sell it. They parked it in the driveway of their little studio, which itself was just like a small house in North Hollywood that had a big garage. (laughs) So now they'd converted that to the studio and had this Winnebago parked outside. The whole time we were talking about teaming up and going into business together, we were both having very high-level meetings with incredibly important executives inside this Winnebago. And it just sort of became the whole mood. It just sort of became the vibe. Like, we're not so, it's going to be cool. The head of Sony is going to come and sit, the head of Sony Animation is going to come and sit in the captain's chair. Don't worry, it spins around. And we're going to have a meeting in this fucking Winnebago. And it was so silly and leveling in a way that we were like, this is a good way to bring everybody down to the same space so that nobody feels awkward or unvalued. And uh, this is the truth. There is a Winnebago code of ethics and it's like stuff like share the road and clean up after yourself and don't pollute, whatever it is. When they were cleaning up the thing to renovate it, they found the Winnebago code of ethics. So we adopted that and made it even more specific to how we want a workplace to run. It's a highly creative job that is hard and challenging and demanding. And so we like to emphasize that it doesn't need to be difficult. Everybody can be a valuable participant and a valued participant, but everybody's got to bring their A game. Nobody makes it about you. It is all about what we're trying to make. That's the only thing that matters. Everybody's working late. Everybody needs something extra, but like, tell us what it is. We'll all work together to get it. We'll all work together to make it. And in this limited sprint, we will have a show, a movie, whatever it is. That's the goal. So the buddy code just really reflects that type of environment that we want to make for everybody that works there. And it emphasizes how dependent we are on all of the participants to make that a reality. That's reminding me of Rick Rubin. He's got the Shangri-La studios that he does production out of. And apparently there's a I don't think it's a Winnebago, but it's sort of one of those vehicles, like traveling vehicles that has beds in it and stuff that's, yeah, equipped with a studio in it, right? And interestingly enough, I've been listening to the Broken Record podcast a lot lately, which is a great podcast. Rick Rubin, Malcolm Gladwell, 
and a couple other really interesting folks interview musicians. But Rick has a similar ethic to what you're saying, where he says, when you're in the studio, it's just about the music. That's all that people are thinking about to the point where they have this weird thing where if somebody's like, they do a good take, right? They do a good take and then they get out of the studio and somebody's like, yeah, that was a great take. It's like, no, like next take, right? Like we're just making music here. We're not like reflecting on it. We're not metaing it, whatever. Like we're just making music. Like it's the number one focus and everybody's purpose is to do that. I want to read through this just for the listeners so they get get a sense of what we're talking about. Mission, Stupid Buddy Studios, collective artists, ideators, tinkerers, builders, animators, and creators, place where friendship, honesty, creativity, and trust all have a seat at the table. Our success is a result of a simple idea. Things that are worth making are best made together. The buddy code, thou shalt be a good buddy. Number two, thou shalt have a can-do attitude. Number three, thou shalt create every day. I like that one. That's a very everyday's people kind of attitude. Thou shalt clean up after oneself. I can see like a sink full of dishes here uh, somewhere, but thou shalt respect thy neighbor's workspace. Respect the bago. Makes sense. Thou shalt not spread false rumor. Good one. Thou shalt communicate, not complicate. That's a big one. Thou shalt suggest ideas that make for a better studio. Yeah, man. I We're of the philosophy that I, we want the best idea and it doesn't have to be mine. Like we need the best idea. Who's got it? We've gotten comfortable with making like snap decisions that people are like, is it A or is it B? I'll go, it's B. And then we just live or die by that. But the more we all work together, the better it works. Yeah. I just feel so many parallels to like Web3 and what's inspired so much innovation in such a short period of time. This idea of just working together and being creative. I think the key of having solid ethics is really important. And if we can sort of inoculate ourselves from some of these bad players in the industry, I think anything's possible here. It is challenging because it's two arguably diverse industries coming together. There's this entire financial component that built blockchain technology. And then there's these artist collective creators who are like, it's just like using it in a completely unintended way. You know what I mean? It's not what it was designed to do. It's just going to be better at doing this thing. So it's edging all of this philosophy of like, pumping and earning and all the selling of it and emphasizing the collective. There's a lot there that we can unpack and we'll have to continue this conversation. But we're just really excited about Replicant X. And this is really groundbreaking stuff that you're doing here. We've got like a whole track on film and animation for NFTLA, but this is a small community at this point. There's not too many people doing stuff that's this unique in the space. And we just are definitely going to keep watching along and we'll have to sort of get an update from you at some point along the way. You have questions about blockchain? Like, how big of a block can you chain without throwing out your back? Or have you received that chain letter? How did you block it? And does blockchain taste better, barbecued or deep fried? <laughs> Luckily, you don't have to ponder these quandaries alone anymore because Blockchain Training Alliance is here to answer them and also train you in real world blockchain issues that will impact your business's bottom line and oriented future forward along the ley lines of the most important tech humanity has perfected since harnessing atomic energy. If you're into those sorts of things, Blockchain Training Alliance is a top leader in the field, counting among its clients IBM, Microsoft, Disney, Morgan Stanley, and many more, and offering a wide array of technical and non-technical courses. Whether you're a computer neophyte training for an incredible career in this new space, or a coding expert honing your skills, Blockchain Training Alliance will help you steer your ship home safely, filled with treasure. <laughs> 
So hurry and sign up for the Blockchain Training Alliance course that best fits your needs at blockchaintrainingalliance.com. Use discount code EDGEOF for 50% off and start your next block today. Let's take it to our next segment, guys. We really want to get into this one. Edge quick hitters. These are fun, quick questions to get to know you a little bit better. 10 quick questions. We're looking for a short, single, or few word response, but feel free to expand if you get the urge. Josh and I will alternate asking these questions. You guys ready? Do it. All right, let's hit it. We'll start with Matt. What is the first thing, Matt, you remember ever purchasing in your life? In my life? In your life. Oof, the first thing I remember purchasing in my life would be an LL Cool J cassette tape. I'm bad. Yeah. Whoa. That's hip, dude. I like that. <laughs> Speaking of Rick Rubin. Yeah. He was involved there early on. Seth, how about you? It may not actually be the first thing I purchased, but it's the purchase I most remember. I bought, it was a birthday of mine. I had gotten like $6, $8. And I had been eyeing this Shogun Warrior, like a five inch all metal spring-loaded rocket fists, all this shit. I had seen it in the store behind the window for weeks. And I was like, $8, what does that even look like? I couldn't imagine that I would ever, ever have it. But I dreamed of this thing. It was metal and heavy. That's not a short answer, but I, I, that was what I bought. I love it. I, you put me there. You put me in that moment, in that mindset. All right, I'm going to kick the next one right back to you, put you on the spot here. What is the first thing you ever remember selling in your life, Seth? Yeah, gosh, this had to be like 93. I had collected a bunch of carded G.I. Joe figures and I made some trades and sales. Nice. Well done. Young hustler. Love it. All right. Back to you, Matt. What is the first thing you ever remember selling in your life? Similar geek cred, comic books for sure. I was a comic book kid. So at some point in the mid 90s, I was going to like comic cons at like the shrine and like buying and selling comic books and just hustling comics from the neighborhood store and trying to sell them for a profit to some guy to buy another comic book and work my way up the comic book ladder. Nice. I like that imagery, working your way up the comic book ladder. And man, Garib Seamus, founder of Comic-Con, he's also a big player in this space. I was just on a panel with him and he's doing a collab with Chopraverse coming soon. So That's wild, man. I know Garrett all the way back from Wizard because uh, Matt Senreich was the editorial director for all the Wizard publications. Garrett, the whole group that that became like the core of San Diego Comic-Con. That's so fun. But I saw Wizard number one in a little bag and backing board. I've got their number one with the ad ad on it. Nice. All right, Matt, back to you. What is the most recent thing you've purchased? Oh, well, okay. I bought a Adam Bomb Squad Batum. Morning. <laughs> nice. We heard about that. And I'll buy a couple more when we're done here. There you go. Seth, what about you? The same thing. <laughs> I bought three of those Batums this morning. I bought an Ryan, thank you, X's project tomorrow. Not shilling. <laughs> no, don't buy it. I want it. <laughs> <laughs> nice. And Seth, what is the most recent thing you sold? God, I never really said. Oh, it's got to be I uh, sold a punk. I sold a punk a couple months ago. Do you get another punk? Do you have a punk stuff? I don't want to talk about it because I'm eyeing it. Let's discuss. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see what happens there. Matt, what about you? Most, I've had this weird little streak of, so I have my PFP, like my forever PFP is a, is a clone X that looks like me. <clears throat> it looks weirdly identical as me. And I specifically bought it because I didn't like clone X's. And I just sold a, my one big sale, like a, my forever ape. I was like, yeah, I'm going to buy something I don't care about. And then it looked like me, some ridiculously attached. So I bought another one. And now twice now, my, my most recent purchase is somebody will hit me up saying, hey, we, are you willing to sell your clone X? Because it looks like me. And I'll give you another one. 
in exchange because they're both floors plus a meat. So I've weirdly sold two. So I sold one and the guy gave me like, hey, here's another Clonex plus an ETH. Like, all right. And then he gave me, hey, my other friend wants the one that, that the other one you have. Can you, would you sell to him for another Clonex plus an ETH? So I'm, I'm weirdly trading for floor Clonexes plus ETH on top. And as long as you buy them as humans, there's a good chance somebody will pop up in the next few months with a K that looks like me. There's some alpha there. And I'm trying to figure out, does everyone look like you or does everyone think that they want to look like you? <laughs> Buying random ones, like just you. Honestly, you know what it is? I buy ones that look like like a normal, like it doesn't have like a weird tongue or like a crazy, like yeah. just like a normal person no, a, with like a hat. And it's not a bad play. Not a bad play for crypto punks either. If you can just grab them and not everyone has a pipe. I'm just too attracted. I'm too attracted to the weird punks. <laughs> <laughs> Like gap tooth or not just attracted to like I was gonna be the punk. Well, because you think about the fact that like they're punks, it's not supposed to be cool looking. They're supposed to be like, oh, what a punk that guy is. Yeah. All right. Next question. Let's hit Matt first. What's your most prized possession? Oh, my most prized possession. I so I'm gonna rule out like the expensive stuff. Like I have like some collectible cars and like whatever you like. Right now. It would probably be, I have a Back to the Future poster on my wall here that I'm looking at right now. I think Seth, I don't know if you've seen it, but it's a subway poster from before the movie came out. So it's like, instead of vertical, it's like six feet long, like three feet tall. That's like one of the giant subway posters. And it says like, coming July 3rd to a theater near you. The poster guy, he's like, have you ever seen a Back to the Future subway poster? And I'm like, no. He's like, I've been doing this for 30 years and I've never seen one either. So no, you will not, there is no deals, there's no discounts, no negotiations. Take it or leave it. Awesome. That's a cool one. What about you, Seth? What's your most prized possession? I had a storage unit robbed like 15 years ago, and it kind of absolved me of real desire to possess things. So things that I've collected at this point are not like prized as possessions in the same way, but the stuff that I buy is stuff that I want to be able to see. Like I bought this Brent Easterbrook recently. Like that's the kind of stuff I buy. I bought I had an opportunity to get a slabbed Amazing Fantasy 15 signed by Stan Lee. So I jumped at that just because I never imagined in my life I'd owned that and like got to meet him and work with him and stuff and was like, I'm going to fucking buy this. Come on, man. I love it. Nice. You look like Young <laughs> Rock. That's what's nice. crazy. Matt's holding up a picture of him and Stan Lee. Did you there. get that slabbed after? Did he sign that? So, so, funny, so he came to my office for this interview thing. I secretly got Steve to do an interview with Stan Lee just so he, I can get him to my office. I got him to sign it. And then I see, I, I got it graded afterwards. So they didn't signature, but they did right on there. Stan Lee, written on cover in marker. <laughs> <laughs> Come on. They didn't authenticate the yeah somebody that is the that's thing good. it's impossible to get that book any of the books that he signs like they automatically go to five just because somebody <laughs> repeated on the cover a stanley signature is the most common thing in comic book them you have a better chance finding what he didn't sign i do love that man next question guys if, let's go over to Seth first. If you could buy anything in the world, digital physical service experience that is currently for sale, what would it be? It's definitely property. Like I love being able to... No, you know what? It's probably a plane, but man, got to be an electric plane that isn't killing the environment. Being able to get around the country, get around the world, I think that's the most valuable thing. In an environmentally friendly way. That's great. Check out VeraJet, Seth. I just, or Verajet, I just had to take 
prop plane with Baron Davis from Utah back to Santa Monica Airport. It's the most environmentally friendly, safest plane in the world. Fair jet. V-E-R-A? Yep. Matt, how about you, Matt? If you could buy anything in the world, digital physical service experience that's currently for sale, what would it be for you? I don't know. I guess for me, uh, it is a car. I love collectible like vintage cars. So there's a Ferrari, like the early 70s. I'd love to get if I had a half million dollars just kind of lying around collecting dust. All right, Matt, check under your chair. We've got the keys. No, just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) What? Is this a parachute plane? This is the coolest looking thing. All right, we got to get through these questions. 100% carbon neutral. Yeah, man. It comes with duct tape. All right, next question. Josh, hit him with the next question. Matt's question. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. Seth might buy a plane before the show's over. Matt, if you could pass on one of your personality traits to the next generation, what would it be? My sense of humor. Right on. I love sense of humor, but I guess I'd say adaptability. There you go. Seth, back to you. If you could eliminate one of your personality traits from future generations, what would it be? Over-talking? <laughs> I don't know, man. Like That's probably gotten you pretty far in life. Yeah, it makes my, annoys my wife all the time, though. <laughs> We're over-talking when home with the wife. That's just, we'll narrow it down. What about you, Matt? Mine is the opposite of seven. It's, it's, I, in public settings where I don't know people, I can get relatively shy and introverted. So I wish I had a little more courage to be like a public speaker. I hate giving like toasts at weddings. Like just like my phobia. We were going to announce you as the keynote for NFTLA. We can't do that now? I mean, listen, I, I always take offers. <laughs> nice. All right. Last two questions here, guys. And this is easy ones here. So we will go to... Matt, first, what did you do, Matt, just before joining us on the podcast? Just I raced home from a meeting in my office, which is like literally two minutes away. I still was four minutes late. Okay. All right. Nice racing. You got a little exercise in for there. That's good. How about you, Seth? What did you do just before joining us on the podcast? I drove home from the office where I had last meeting, but I had timed it well enough that I could prepare myself this bottle of water to drink during the podcast. Awesome. Hydrated. Very good. All right. Last question, guys. Seth, back to you. What are you going to do next after this podcast? I'm going to go say hi to my wife who just got home. <laughs> All right. Nice. Good. Always good to say hello. And then Matt, what are you going to do after the podcast? You may have told us. I don't know. Yeah, I got to go wrestle with my kids for a while. Nice. They love that wrestling. Yeah. Awesome. All right, guys. Well, that's Hot Topics. And that'll pretty much be our show for today. But we just want to make sure before we roll off, we want to know where listeners can go to learn more about you guys, and projects that you're working on. So make sure and give us those links and websites and all that good stuff. So say that one more time. You want us to give us the link we're working on? Yeah, web links and websites and, and handles and stuff like that. Yeah. So ours would be for Steve, it's Aokiverse, which is just sound as there is a complicated A0K1 verse spelling that you can have fun with, but just Aokiverse, like it sounds, XYZ. That's our token gated community where we when you get alpha. You get events, you get merch, all kinds of stuff. And then separately, the project with Seth, dominionxshow.com is the website. Very cool. Else to add, Seth, or did that pretty much cover it? I mean, my name at most domains, most things, I'm pretty easy to find it. I'm so vocal about all the stuff that I'm doing. Just check it out. Hey there, NFT Space Cadet. Let's zoom in on the globe from outer space today to Abbott Kinney Boulevard in Venice Beach, LA. Let me show you a cosmic tech beacon that shines out among the bustle of fashion, art, and food there. It's a thriving software dev, data science, and design studio known as AE Studio. 
where scores of the sharpest minds have come together to help founders and execs create software and machine learning solutions that are not only profitable and increase our agency as humans, but that give us that warm, fuzzy feeling that elegant tech so wonderfully does. AE's breadth of talent allows them to build anything from instillvideo.com, it's a health, fitness, and wellness app that makes your chakras tingle, to award-winning brain-computer interface solutions that could quite literally bend our minds. Oh, and keep an eye out for Token Runners, their NFT white-label marketplace, as well as our highly anticipated NFT drop, Boomer NFT. Now, for all you DGENs who strive to shed the cummerbund and pearls, comes a jaw-dropping, awe-inspiring partnership not seen since the heyday of Shaq and Kobe. It's called Edge of AE Studio, and you can find out all about it at edgeofae.com. That's right, this full-service, soup-to-nuts, end-to-end, whole-enchilada NFT service can help you, yes, you, Randy, launch your NFT project. Edge of NFT and AE Studio have come together like Voltron to get your project in gear so you can hightail it straight to the moon, stardom, and maybe even your own private yacht. Go to edgeofae.com to find out more. That's edgeofae.com. Actual results may vary depending on moon landing location, domain of stardom, scale and model of yacht, as well as weather scale model of yacht or actual yacht. Well... We've reached the outer limit at the edge of NFTs for today. Thanks for everyone for exploring with us. We've got more space for adventurers on the Starship. So everyone invite their friends and recruit some cool strangers that will make this journey all so much better. How? You can go to Spotify or iTunes right now, rate us and say something awesome. Then go to Edge of NFT to dive further down the rabbit hole. Look us up on all major social platforms by typing Edge of NFT with no spaces and start a fun conversation with us online. Lastly, be sure to tune in next time for more great NFT content. Thanks, Matt and Seth, for joining us today. Thanks, guys. Right on. Thank you. Thank you. The views and opinions expressed on the Edge of NFT podcast reflect solely those views and opinions of the show creators and its guests. We're learning as we go, just like you. Please make sure to do your own research. Our podcast is not financial advice. There are multiple strategies and not all strategies fit all people. You understand that you are using any and all information available on or through this podcast at your own risk.